Good morning. If you are able, I would ask that you please stand for the reading of God's Word. This morning we are reading from the book of Hebrews, chapter 9, verses 11 through 14. And the word of the Lord reads this way. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with, with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And this is the word of the Lord. God, you may be seated. Let's pray. Father, may your word speak straight to our souls. Father, may we respond in humble repentance and faith. And may we go serve the living God. Father, for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's get right into it. Rusty, Pastor Russ, posed this question last week. How are we going to get to God? How are you going to get to God? And everyone says, quick, Jesus! All happy because they have the answer. But then I think, unfortunately, many of us just go about our days falling into one of these categories, either A, not knowing what that even means. Great, I have Jesus, so I can get to God. What does that mean? Some of us honestly just don't care that much about getting God. We're fine with our McDonald's Whopper. And yet many of us have tasted God. Category C, we know how to get to God, and yet we long to understand more fully so that we may go more faithfully to walk with our Lord. Let me pause for a moment, though. The fact that some of you know the McDonald's and Burger King menu better than you know what it's like to walk with God so proves my point. But let's not get distracted. First point, three barriers to getting to God or drawing near to God. Three barriers to getting to God or to drawing near to God, however you want to say that phrase. Three barriers. The three barriers I'll give you here briefly, and then I'll work through each one, is the physical barrier, the spiritual barrier, and what I'm going to call a personal barrier. Beginning with a personal or the physical barrier. The temple veil and the flesh represent this physical barrier. Because God is holy and we are not, we cannot enter into his presence. But why? But why? Why cannot evil enter into God's presence? And why can we not? Because we are evil. Why not? 
I had a conversation, I guess it's been a couple months ago now, I had to go refresh my memory on one of our pastor's wives. Well, I'll tell you, it was Bryn, because I'm going to quote her here in a second. I did not ask her for permission, but, um, and I, I don't tend to do that, but uh, evil depends on good for its very definition. We speak of evil in terms of unrighteousness, unrighteousness, or injustice, or lawlessness, lawlessness, because evil is a parasite on good. Evil cannot even exist if there was not good. So if something is perfectly righteous and holy, then evil could literally not exist in its presence. Because it's, it's nothing for it to be parasitic upon. Evil can exist in our presence, though, because our imperfection provides the access for the parasite to latch onto. And I'm, I'm going to quote her. I don't know, maybe she was quoting someone else, but I went back and looked at a, at a text thread. God cannot be in the presence of evil, not simply because it disgusts him, but because by the very definition of evil, his perfect goodness will consume it. It's not simply a preference thing for him, but by, this very, by his very nature, it's logically impossible for perfect goodness to coexist with even a shred of evil. The temple veil, the holy of holies, and the separation, and then the flesh that represent this physical barrier. Modern, this physical barrier. Modern Christians I think have very little understanding or don't have a rich enough understanding of this separation. That we had no access to God. We could not get to God. This, this barrier was in place. Why do we have such a little understanding? I think in part because we have a woefully insufficient view of God's holiness. We've spent decades suckling upon the bottle of man's awesomeness and just how to be a better person than we have been eating the rich meat of God's holiness. And because we want a world, we we have a woeful, uh, poor understanding of this separation because we want a world where no one judges anyone, where everyone can do what is right in his own eyes. And much of that has crept into the church. But see, the priest would walk, understand this, the priest would walk in to, to make a sacrifice for God's people. He would walk in with trepidation. Even after going through all of the rituals, even go, the cleansing rituals, before he would walk in, he'd still walk in with trepidation. Why? Because he knew and he understood that God looked at the conscience, that God looked at the heart, not just the flesh, and he knew that the sacrifices only dealt with the flesh. You see, as the old covenant priest would draw nearer to God, trepidation would mount. See, he could come nearer, but he could not be near to God. He could not be near to God without a new heart. A conscience that has been cleaned. For without it, man cannot come near to God. 
Now, this physical barrier pointed to a greater reality, a spiritual barrier, which I just referenced that, the need for a new heart, the spiritual barrier, a heart that would, if I was to describe this new heart, a heart that would love God and love all of His ways, that would love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, a new heart that would be wiped clean and 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 would be aimed at loving God, trusting God, submitting to God, following God. And what we've learned so far in Hebrews is that that need, that barrier, could not be overcome by the old covenant sacrificial system. It couldn't change the heart. It could only deal with the flesh. That's why you see in this passage He entered once and for all, and so on and so forth. He says, so if these blood and goats could deal with the flesh, how much more could uh, the blood of Christ deal with the internal, the spiritual? The barrier could not be overcome by the old covenant. But this again is what 11 through 14 tells us Christ is able to do. He's able to cleanse our hearts Give us a new one, able to wipe it clean, make it beat for God, and remove the spiritual barrier between us and the Lord. Practically, because a heart cannot enter God's presence, which has been plagued with sin. More on that in a minute. But this is a beautiful and amazing that, that God that God would institute the new covenant that would then deal with this spiritual barrier. And yet, there is something related to this spiritual barrier that I'm calling a third barrier. The first two barriers are what God thinks about us. The third barrier is what we think about ourselves. I'm calling that the personal barrier or the conscience. The conscience. I think this is the particular aim of this passage, this third barrier. Yes, it addresses the spiritual barrier, and we'll we'll talk about that a little bit more as we go, but the aim is this personal barrier, this conscience. It's not just God gives us a new heart to obey, but particularly, now hear me, He cleans our conscience so we can draw near to God, and when that happens, we obey. So we can put it maybe in a more succinct way. A cleansed conscience finds a home with God, and obedience flows freely. A clean conscience finds a home with God, and obedience flows freely. That's really my thesis. So as we think about this personal barrier, the conscience, what is the conscience? I need to define this so we're all at least somewhat on the same page or at least in the same ballpark. Think about the, the darkest uh, like evil thing about yourself that you know. Maybe that secret. 
the great truth that if anyone, or at least the people who you care about, if they knew about it, they would condemn you for it, or so you think. What does that thought in your mind do to your relationship with those people? What does that do practically? Let me give you an example of what I mean. Imagine someone who is sinning in the realm of emotional lusts. Man or woman, you've become emotionally or even sexually drawn to another person other than your spouse. Maybe you haven't acted on it physically, but it's in your mind. Doesn't that make you feel dirty? Unworthy, unacceptable when it comes to relating now to your spouse? Don't you walk into that conversation with that nagging thought on the edge of your mind? Or maybe while you're engaging in intimacy, like it's just back there in the back of your mind, just nagging at your conscience, just plaguing that moment and plaguing that relationship? Now, don't get me wrong, if you have unrepented sin, it should nag at you, it should haunt you, and it should ruin those moments. But then that should drive you to repentance. But what I want you to notice at this moment, that it is a barrier to drawing near to that person and to serving that person. It's a barrier indeed. The same is true in drawing near to God. The more the conscience is burdened, hear me, with the weight of sin, the greater the barrier in you drawing near to God. Adam and Eve, hopefully you're familiar with that story. One of the saddest stories in all history. They're walking in the garden with God enjoying being near to Him. They sin. Then what do they do? They go hide in their shame. Right? They have this personal barrier now. It's, it's, it's not just a physical thing. It's not just a spiritual thing. But, but their own perception of themselves is now plagued with the reality of their sin. They knew what they did. They, they, they now feel it. They, they know it's objectively true. We're now unworthy to be near to God. That's why they hide. That's why they run. And yet many of us relive this same story every single day. A conscience that is plagued with sin from the past. And we live in this tension-filled unpleasantness with God, like a low-grade fever, like a mildly unsettled stomach, or a slight measure of depression, never feeling terrible, but never really quite good either. Now, let me give you my pastoral assessment for our congregation I think somewhere around 10% of you, might be a generous number, live near to God 
because you know the gift of a cleansed conscience and you experience the joy of serving him and you love it. There's another 10% of you that just don't care. Your conscience is seared. You don't understand how holy God is or how sinful you are. You're drunk on serving yourself and serving your own glory. The other 90% or 80% if I could add, need to hear today's sermon and this passage because you fit the description above. How do I know? Because your service unto God, unto the living God, teeters in and out of smelling like dead fish. Some days it's done with joy, and other days it's done with a low grumble. Some days it's done with vigor and thoroughness, and other days it's like pulling teeth. But God-honoring joyful service comes only from a clean conscience that has drawn near to God. The next point I want you to see is the problem of the conscience. I'm just going to keep pressing in on this conscience thing of verse 14. I don't think we think about the conscience enough. We just sort of meander from one event to the next. We float from one emotional engagement to the next, like slaves on a cotton-picking farm. The conscience, though, serves to tell us about ourselves. It's a gift of God. The conscience he's referring to here is a gift of God that's there to tell us about ourselves. It's there to help us understand what's going on and what we're believing and what we're thinking. It communicates to us what we are, at least what we think we are. It's a gift, not something to be taken lightly and not something to be numbed. If I could just get right at it. Some of us have, quote, psychological issues, end quote, When in reality, what you really have is sin issues. Namely, you have sin that you're unwilling to repent for, and so you walk with a conscience that is plagued. Or you have sin that you've repented for. So let's assume you have gave these to God. At least you've you've said, I'm sorry, Lord, please forgive me. But your muscle memory of your mind that says God has cleansed me is weak. And so you forget easily, I've been forgiven of that sin. I've been cleansed of that sin. My conscience is clear. And so what do we do? We'd much rather suppress the conscience, throw a pill at it, run from it, ignore it. And when we do, Here's the danger. It's not just that that particular sin would get swept under the rug. The danger is that your conscience gets seared more and more and more. It gets hardened. It gets burnt. But the conscience isn't something to be ran from, but something to be trained. It needs cleansed, right? That's what we learn here in this passage. It needs cleansed. And then it needs reminded of that cleansing. 
So if you're taking notes, I'll write that down. My, the conscience needs cleansed, and then it's going to need trained in the reminding or the remembering of that cleansing. It will be very prone to forget, and it will be very prone to accuse and to remind you of those failures. In part because our conscience is riddled with dead works. Our conscience is riddled with dead works. Look at Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works? Now, if you know how to read your Bible, what he's telling us is that every person's conscience has dead works. Now, what are dead works? A couple things here. They're works that produce death. Or they're the fruits or the effects of death. So either works that produce death or the fruits or the effects of death itself. Three categories here. The world, first, is busy about dead works. The world is busy about dead works. Examples. Selfish, career-driven women. Busy about dead works. Lazy husbands, too tired to tend the garden of their home after a hard day's work. Now sitting in front of the screen for the evening, busy about dead works. Dumb churches, busy about dead works. Filling people with emotionalism, busy about dead works. Preaching about sin, but not the sins in the room, busy about dead works. Some of us walk with dead works, dead works from the past that we haven't fully trusted in the blood of Christ for forgiveness. Some examples of that, maybe that past relationship you had that was full of sin. That career chasing or parental neglect in disciplining your kids or the prolonging of immaturity. Or maybe it's dead works that you just did, like you just did this morning. Maybe you looked at something you shouldn't have. Or maybe you had a cross face with your spouse when you shouldn't have. Or maybe you failed to do something that you should have done. It could be dead works also, or it could be uh, great works done out of dead motives. Maybe you did that work, that great work to prove yourself to God or others. It's a great work, but done out of death. Or maybe you do it to get an applause or a thank you from others. It would be a good work done out of death. Maybe you do it so you can use it to get your way in the future with someone else, like a deposit expecting a return on your investment. It's a good work done out of death. And these things are either produce death or they're the effects of death. But here's the reality. All dead works... All of these are dead works, and if your conscience is alive and not burnt to a crisp, then you will feel the weight of those dead works. Whether it's ones you've already repented for, but the memory, the muscle strength of remembering that you've been cleansed, it's so therefore it still haunts you, or it's a sin that you've not repented of or not willing to repent of. It plagues our conscience. And that conscience, plagued with sin, hinders our drawing near to God. Now again, like, it could be two broad categories of sin. The knowledge of past sins, 
It could also be an awareness of current sinful desires and thoughts. Like anything like right now, you're like, I am tempted to sin in this way, and I know it's there. And so it plagues your drawing near to God, your getting to God. And so you walk with this low-grade fever or this seasonal depression. And like Adam and Eve, you scurry off to the side trying to cover your nether regions with tin maple leaves. Bouncing in and out of duty and dread when it comes to serving the Lord. Why? Because you bounce in and out of living near God. Why? Because your conscience is plagued. It hinders drawing near to God like a weight. One commentator said this, as sinners, we have an inner consciousness of guilt that keeps us from drawing near to God. Sin had that effect in the garden when Adam and Eve fled from the voice of God, and it has the same effect on us. This was a great problem in the Old Covenant. The curtain in the tabernacle was a barrier erected by God, but there's another barrier within. Knowing our guilt, we naturally erect our own barrier against God. We dread drawing near to His presence, dread seeing Him in His holiness, or being seen by Him in our sin. And so, some of us just stand off at a distance stapling our Hobby Lobby Christianity Christianity onto our walls or talking some Christian talk here and there while others of us bounce in and out of joyful service because every time you get just a little nearer to God, the barrier goes right up with the words, but I did blank. My encouragement to you would be to throw it off Lay it aside. Run the race. Hebrews 12.1 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. He's not just saying stop doing sins. He's telling you to throw off the weight that that sin has caused. Because it's been forgiven. You don't just run faster because uh, you, you, you run faster. You run faster because you threw the weights off. What are the weights? In part, it's a plagued conscience. Well, how do we do this? That same commentator said, Our conscience tells us what we must think of ourselves, but the blood of Christ tells us what God thinks of us in Christ. My third point, the power of Christ's blood deals with our conscience. The power of Christ's blood deals with our conscience. Back to our passage 11 through 12. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of His own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. 
Well, first of all, blood had to be shed, right? Do you know why blood had to be shed? Because blood represents life and any sin, even the smallest of sin against God, deserves a life sentence. So blood was necessary. Now under the old covenant, you got to understand that men, women of course, may or may not have been aware of whether or not they were clean or unclean. They could have walked over a grave and not known that they did, which would make them unclean. They could have touched the bone of a human. They, th- they thought it was a cow or whatever. So they're unclean. Then we have the blood of goats and bulls. Now the point that he's doing in Hebrews here isn't to show the failure of these things, but to sh- instead to show us how effective it was. You see, sin and death were things that defiled people. Sin and death. Okay? And these pictures are pointing to something greater, but at this point in the Old Covenant, sin and death were things that defiled. And these sacrifices of the Old Covenant dealt with those two problems. They were able to restore them to fellowship with God and fellowship with Israelite society. They were effective at doing that. So don't, don't like dismiss and go, oh, the blood of goats, and that, that was, you know, blah, because it didn't, you know, do anything. No, it was effective. But you also can't miss this, that the act of faith, though, was still present in the work of goats and bulls. How? So here's the deal. As these heifers, they would have been red heifers, according to the Scriptures, would have been sacrificed, it didn't count for anything for the unclean person unless the unclean person would ask a cleaned person or a clean person to go on their behalf, gather some of the ashes, mix it with water, and come cleanse the person and their home, and then after seven days, they would be clean. So just because the sacrifice was made doesn't mean it was applied. But the faith of believing, if that gets washed over me, it will make me clean. Faith was the conduit. It was the, if you know what a conduit is, it's the pipe, the water pipe through which the water flows. Or you see there's electrical pipes on the wall. Those are called conduit. And electric flows through those pipes. So just as, to speak summarily here, this represents that you and I may or not be aware of the depth of our sin, and that a sacrifice of atonement was necessary for that, and faith is the conduit through which it's applied. And then that whole picture points to something more. It could deal with the flesh and it dealt with it perfectly fine. But then in verse 14, he says, how much more will the blood of Christ? So here, here's, the, here's where I'm drawing out this distinction, if, if you're not quite caught up with me. It's not the law was bad and the old covenant was, was terrible and it just didn't do anything. Oh, but great, we got Jesus. No, he's saying this was effective. It did its job. It was great at what it was meant to do, what it was created to do. It did a good job. 
But how much more is the blood of Christ? How much more? Now let me connect for you before we talk about the blood specifically. I want to connect dead works and the conscience. Back to this idea of the knowledge of past sins. The knowledge of past sins and the plaguing of the conscience. Spurgeon said this, But I have found it equally powerful since then, for when I am examining myself before God, it sometimes comes to pass that I fix my eye on some evil that I have done. I turn it over until the memory of it eats into my very soul like a caustic acid or like a gnawing worm or like coals of fire. He says, I've tried to argue that the fault was excusable in me or that there were certain circumstances that rendered it almost impossible that I could do otherwise. But I have never succeeded in quieting my conscience in that fashion. A knowledge of past sins plagued. What he's saying is I, I, I can't numb myself away from it. I can't excuse myself away from it. That doesn't ever deal with it sufficiently. That's why it keeps coming back up. Maybe the sin doesn't. But the remembrance, the plaguing of it. Or maybe it's the awareness of current sinful desires and thoughts. Like you can taste it. Some of you know what I'm talking about. It's that sinful desire that lurks for you around every corner. Maybe it's lust. Maybe it's greed. Maybe it's pride. Maybe it's always thinking about how things relate to you instead of to God. You need to know blood was shed for you and it has cleansed not just your flesh, but your conscience has cleaned it, wiped it clean, has made it clean. But our conscience needs this constant training. I've been cleansed. I've been cleansed. How do we get there? How do, how, how do you train the heart to remember that it's been cleansed? By active, ongoing repentance and faith. Father, forgive me of the sin I committed this morning. I've been cleansed. Remembering that, and then when that sin for which you've repented of and not acted on again comes up, you don't have to repent at that moment, but you need to say, conscience, you've been cleansed. You've been cleansed. Now, if you fall to that same sin, you need to repent, and then remind your conscience you've been cleansed of this. How do you know? How do we know? That for those who have faith in Christ alone, that your conscience has been cleansed. How do we know? Because Christ's blood could deal with that which the old covenant could not. And how do we know that? Because Christ's blood was superior. I'm going to walk this out, but Christ's blood was superior. Look at 13 and 14 again. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of a defiled person, 
uh, persons with the ashes of a heifer, sanctify for the purification of the flesh. Now, again, remember right there, he's saying it worked. It purified the flesh. This was good. Verse 14, how much more? So that was effective. But this does more. That deals with the flesh. But this deals with more than just the flesh. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Listen, listen, look up here. Do do you know what will break that low-grade fever you have? It isn't beating up the preacher for saying something you don't like. It isn't having more family time with less arguments. It isn't in finding a way to to ignore the exhortation. None of those are going to help your low-grade fever. You know what medication is best for that kind of depression? It isn't nailing everything on your self-righteous checklist. It isn't alcohol or nicotine. It isn't Paxil or Prozac or the cocktail of your choice. The better pill for your conscience is threefold. First, a better sacrifice. You needed a better sacrifice, one that could sufficiently deal with it all. Listen, the animal could take on the sin temporarily. Jesus can take on the sin permanently. That's part of what he means by how much better, how much more. Right? We've, we've talked about this in Hebrews already many times. He paid for it once and for all. Done. Finished. Final. No need for another sacrifice. The temple veil's torn. We can walk in. Jesus' blood could absorb it all. He could pay for it forever. So that conscience that plagues your mind, it plagues your soul, your existence, and you're drawing near to God. Jesus' sacrifice absorbed it all. It absorbed all the sin and all of the wrath that was due to you for that sin. Andrew Murray said this, it was the life of God that de- dwelt in him, Jesus. That life gave his blood, each drop of it, an infinite value. The blood of a man is of more worth than that of a sheep. The blood of a king or a great general is counted of more value than the hundreds, hundreds of common soldiers. The blood of the Son of God, it is in vain the mind seeks for some expression of its value. All we can say is, it is His own blood, the precious blood of the Son of God. A better pill for your conscience is a better sacrifice. Second, He's the appointed means of our salvation. He's the appointed means of our salvation. The blood of bulls and goats was appointed by God for ceremonial cleansing. That's God had made, he had appointed that the way. He said, this is going to be the way for my people to relate to me and to each other for right now. 
But the superior blood of Christ was appointed by God for actual and eternal redemption for sin. Listen, that, you should chew on that the rest of this week. God appointed His Son and the drops of His blood to be that which would deal with our greatest need. That was God's plan. And here's part of the point. If that was God's plan, if He appointed it, then it is so. And we have lost all sight of the sovereignty of the King. Because we don't have kings. We certainly don't have good ones. If there's anything that comes close. But when the king says something, it's so. When he appoints it to happen, it happens. It's effective. It's going to do its job. How much more when God says, his blood will pay for this price. So when your conscience is plagued when that pat, with that past sin, you should remind your conscience, God appointed the blood to pay for it, and it is so. Tell your conscience to get in line. To get its affairs in order. To straighten up. Train it. Acts 4.12 says this, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. His blood is the appointed means. And you tell your conscience and remind it every day. Next, a better pill for your conscience. Number three, his sacrifice was offered through the eternal spirit. That's the way Hebrews talks about it here. Jesus' bodily pain that he experienced that we tend to glorify a lot When we think about the cross, we tend to think about the brutality of the cross and how many lashings and how much blood. I mean, if you watched The Passion, which, you know, um, that's unfortunate, but if you watched it, then it was just a big glorying in the physical gruesomeness of the cross, which misses the ultimate point of the cross. The ultimate point of the cross was the temporary rejection of the Father, When he turned his face away, it was his spirit, not his body. It was his spirit that drank the wrath of God to every last drop. When when your conscience is saying, hey, let's assume for the moment you repented of of A. Your conscience reminds you of that sin. You know what your conscience is trying to tell you to do? It's what it's trying to tell you. It's trying to tell you that there is yet another drop of God's wrath to be drank up, and you should drink it. What should you tell your conscience in that moment? He drank every last drop! He drank it all. He took it. There ain't nothing more for me to drink. If I was black, I could have gotten you all riled up, right? (laughs) Maybe if you were not so white, you'd be a little more excited too. (laughs) 
Now, here's, here's part of why it's important that this is a spiritual sacrifice. If it's the spiritual, it's through the Spirit. He talks about it through verse 14, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God. If it's just a physical sacrifice, then it can only be applied physically. But if it's a spiritual sacrifice, then it can be applied spiritually. So because it's a spirit, he offered himself up spiritually without blemish. This is juxtaposing. This is contrasting and comparing to these these bulls and goats. If he does it spiritually, then it can be applied spiritually. The whole point of the passage is Christ's blood applies to the heart. It deals with the conscience, which when spiritually applied, actually restores us to fellowship with God, who is spirit. He actually, effectively, eternally, fully restores us to God. So there's nothing else in that thing that's been cleansed for you to deal with. As far, I mean, you might have to make restitution. You might have to continue walking out the repentance. But as far as the plague, being plagued by the guilt and the shame of that sin, it's dealt with. It's been paid for. There's nothing left for you to drink. Jesus drank it all. That's why I tell you, there's a better pill for you to take. Nothing else will break the low-grade fever. It might keep it at bay. It might make you feel good for a few more days. But it can't deal with it. That's what uh, Spurgeon was talking about. He said, I've tried to argue that the fault was excusable in me, or that, that there were certain circumstances that rendered it impossible, that I could do what is right, but I have never succeeded in quieting my conscience in that fashion. It won't work. It won't work. But because of his blood, we are cleaned from those dead works. That's what he's telling us. And here's the deal. When you don't run from the conscience or suppress it with medication, drugs, other distractions, and you train it to remember it has been cleansed, then and only then your conscience will become this inner reminder that the blood and the righteousness of Jesus is yours. Which is where, this you may not like grasp, I, I, I wish I knew what was going on in each of your heads. That's where you want to be. That's where you want to be. You want to be not just with a conscience that isn't reminding you of past sin. What you want to do is have a conscience that's reminding you of the blood of Jesus. Because when it reminds you of the blood of Jesus, it becomes your best friend. It becomes a gift. It becomes a joy. It becomes, it becomes fuel for service. It becomes a delight. It becomes your joy. You sing songs because you're excited. When that conscience has been trained to remember. So one of the worst things you can do, not just to, to avoid the sin that you need to deal, deal with, but the long-term negative effects of suppressing the conscience, pushing it aside, letting it sear, is losing out on a conscience that loves the living God. That's what you miss out on. A conscience that reminds you that you've been cleansed. That's what you want. You want a conscience 
that says you, have, you don't have to fear God's wrath. You want a conscience that can draw near to God because it's not plagued with sin. And if you can do that, and this is all by God's grace, and, and it is plenty and sufficient, and you don't even have to ask for it because it's already yours, then you will know the joy of serving the living God. You will know the joy of serving the living God. Look at the end of verse 14. He says, purify our conscience from dead works to, so it's meaning unto, there's something it moves toward. It's a progression. Cleaned conscience deals with dead works, moves us on to serving the living God. You see, the purpose of Christ's blood, it secures eternal redemption. Like, we know that. So when I say, like, when Rusty says, Pastor Russ says, how do you get to God? Well, Jesus. This is part of why you need a more robust answer than just Jesus. You need to know what that even means. It secures our eternal, our, our eternal redemption. And in part, to fill in some of the meat around that answer of it's Jesus, the priest would have had to walk in, but nervously because he knew that God looked at the heart, right? John Owen says this, For we are not washed by Christ, that we may plunge ourselves again into new filth, but that our purity may serve to glorify God. Part of the purpose of Christ's blood is so that our conscience would be cleansed, so that we may serve the living God out of joy, out of delight, out of love, because He's redeemed us. Like, how do you practically foster a life of, of joyful serving the Lord? You have to train your conscience to remember that there's no more blood, no more wrath to drink. John Owen again, he says, The Holy Spirit so persuades us that God loves us that our souls are filled with joy and comfort. This is His work, and He does it effectively to persuade a poor, sinful soul that God in Jesus Christ loves him, delights in him, is well pleased with him, and only has thoughts of kindness towards him is an inexpressible mercy. And I'm saying practically, how do you, how do you get to that? It's in those moments where your conscience is reminding you of past sin, that you've repented of, you train it. You train it to remember it's been cleansed. And then when you sin in the present, you repent of it quickly. And then by faith, you believe and remind yourself and train your conscience that you've been cleansed, you've been forgiven. Spurgeon said this, to serve the living God is necessary to the happiness of a living man, of a living man. Right, this one is been given a new heart by the blood of Christ. To that man, to serve the living God is necessary to the happiness of that man. For this end we were made, and we miss the design of, of our making if we do not honor our maker. Namely, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. If we miss that, if we miss that end, we are ourselves terrible losers. The service of God is the element in which alone we can fully live. 
Some of you think that real joy comes only when singing a worship song or only when you get what you want or when you understand a sermon fully or getting your self-righteous checklist done or not being bothered or stressed. But joy comes from serving the Lord, having drawn near to Him with a clean conscience. That's where it comes from. I love how he starts this passage off. My, what good things have come. You see what the good things are? I hope you see it. The good things have come. We have a clean, a cleansed conscience that can draw near to God. But here's the deal. You have to pick up some ashes, mix it with water, and pour it over you. What do I mean? To have faith. How do you exercise faith? Do the mental work of training your conscience. Every time it condemns you, you take it back to the blood. You say to it, how much more will the blood of Christ? You're reminded over and over again until the fever is gone. You train your conscience over and over again until it becomes your dear friend. His death preaches to us that the debt has been paid for all our sin. And let us serve the living God. Let me end with this quote from Spurgeon. Listen, listen to these words. I, I wish I was a, could speak like Spurgeon, but we'll let Spurgeon speak. <clears throat> Should not our service be rendered in the full strength of our new life? Let us have no more dead works, no more dead singing, no more dead praying, no more dead preaching, no more dead hearing. Oh, said one when he heard a sermon, it was very good if it had been alive. Dead and alive Christianity is poor stuff. No dish ever comes to the table that is so nauseous as cold religion. Put it away. Neither God nor man can endure it. Let us have cakes hot from the oven, manna fresh from heaven, living waters leaping from the rock. Stale godliness is ungodliness. Let our religion be as warm and constant and natural as the flow of the blood in our veins. A living God must be served in a living way. Let's pray. Father, you are indeed a living God, and you have given your people a heart that is alive. Father, may we put aside this cold, dead religion, the one that isn't hard to find driving down the road. And let us do so by reminding our conscience that it's been cleansed, by training it to know that it's been cleansed, that it's been purified by the blood of your son Jesus. He drank all the wrath. Father, I pray that you would grant this to your people. Father, your grace is sufficient for this task. 
Lord, help us to not be people that serve in and out of discouragement, in and out of joy, but people who have so trained their conscience to know the purity and the effectiveness of the blood of Jesus that our souls would serve with joy in everything we do. Instead of the low-grade fever that many of us walk with every day. Father, I ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.